suppose a more um, a question of Team Origi and Team Brenner, and one that's uh, more significant for um, Brenner Origi's critique of Brenner is the claim on page one three one, where Origi accuses Brenner of carving out the global South, which is to say, you know, the bulk of humanity. And what in the period that Brenner's talking about is still in many ways kind of um, agrarian, poor, um, extractive economies rather than industrial economies. And Arigi says it's simply illegitimate to confine your understanding of the global economy to a handful of industrial centers and to ignore essentially the rest of it. And I wanted to ask... um, and this is hinged around, I should say, this is hinged around Derigi's point that you can't understand the long downturn without understanding America's attempt to contain um, the insurgency in Vietnam. And so the inflationary spending that America was required to engage in in order to um, maintain its welfare warfare state in the 1960s and 70s in the course of the Vietnam War, that you can't understand the long downturn without understanding that struggle to contain third world nationalism. And so I wondered what we made of it. What do you guys make of it? Is it, you know, can you just say the world economy is essentially, you know, I can count it on the fingers, its main kind of nodes on the fingers of one hand. And if the rest of the world falls out of that, you're tough. Is that legitimate? I mean, Does it move? Hmm. It, it's 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 conjuncturally legitimate, right? It, like it, it make it, that might be legitimate in a certain place in time or the time the place is Earth, but um, you know at a certain time. The question is in the nineteen seventies because this is basically what we're talking about, right? Um, they were talking about Brenner's thesis about the long downturn of about overcapacity. So we're talking about the period you know from the sixties through to the nineties, um, and whether excluding the third world and, and you know, the the South you know, as, as Rigi calls it, would then be larger economies like Brazil and Mexico, and then, you know, eventually China, obviously, but that would be today. Um, to a certain extent, the kind of tiger economies of Southeast Asia, I guess, would be included in the South, but I'm not sure. Um, or Brenner builds his model, it's worth saying, or builds his thesis. No, they would. I mean, he makes the point, right? He makes the point that even if you exclude China, the extent of industrial growth throughout the world is still significant. So it's not just industrialization of East Asia, but like you have industrial growth in other parts of the world yeah. too. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a story, you know, there's an alternative timeline where without the debt crisis of the 80s, that though that excluding the South really makes no sense. But the progress of those of, of, of the South gets very severely interrupted in, in the 1980s. And as a consequence, you know, by the by the 90s, you can say, yeah, it actually makes total sense to just talk about, you know, Germany, Japan, and the US. Um, and, you know, Brenner b- builds his thesis on those three blocks. And each each of those are important nodes in kind of regional networks as well. Germany is the most important economy in, in, in Europe and J- Japan and East Asia. Um, he Arigi makes his point in part by referring to the volume of, of exports and the relative share of exports. And those three account for only 60%, something like that. And so he goes, well, you know, you're excluding the rest. I, I think it, I think what Brenner does is, is fairly legitimate in the time that he's talking about right now. China is not a, is not a relevant force in that period. Um, and the, there is yeah, a point, could, there's a, you could, you could do the same now, right? You just add China to the mix and you say, you know, it's China, the US, Germany, Japan, you know, there you go, whatever. And the uh, rest. Yeah, but I, I guess you'd have to examine it in, in each in each point in time and how kind of um, 
you know, the kind of share of the world economy, how it's broken down at different points in time. And there's been point, there's been periods in time in 1945. Um, I was think I was looking at this. I, I can't remember exactly now. So I forget the reference. But 1945 was a point at which there was the greatest concentration of kind of wealth and economic activity in, in certain countries, right? It was like US and Britain. Yeah, the US was something like 50% of world GDP, exactly. if memory serves. Yeah. yeah. So it's like totally legitimate to talk about the global system and really focus on only a few countries. Yeah, I mean, Alex is our kind of global South correspondent in oh, correspondent there. representative. He speaks on behalf of all of the global South, particularly the Campesinos. I don't think you should write yourself out of the um, the conversation, um, Alex. But no, my serious point was going to be like I wanted to to try and like summarize this. Um, you know, what is the di- what is the basic difference between Brenner and Origi in the way that Origi presents it, and it seems to be that essentially Brenner's model is um, what's doing the explanatory work is the relationship between different capitalist powers or the the contradiction between different capitals or that capital-capital relation. Whereas Origi says, no, there's three things. There's relationship between different national capitals. There's relationship between capital and labor in each of those cases. And there's also these north-south relations. So it's, it's difficult to... Um, to say that these other two things are not completely uh, are completely irrelevant, um, but equally, that's it seems like it's always easier to make the argument. Well, what about this other thing? And part of the reason why um, models have explanatory power is that they identify the most important aspects. Mm. Otherwise, it would just be a reproduction of reality, which would be too complex. So I'm 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 sort of a bit on that kind of very abstract kind of conceptual point, um, quite quite torn but if i had to pick two of the three it would be capital capital relations and capital labor relations not north south relations i mean why i would yeah. have to pick two of the three i'm not sure that seems quite arbitrary but i'm imposing on myself no but i, so, but I agree with you i think he misses out the labor the labor thing i find Arigi's critique that he misses out the way that um rising wages squeeze profits that seems to be really important, which Brenner misses out because Brenner just goes, no, mm. capital can dribble that. Gra- capital can go, if wages start rising in the US, in US industry, they can move to other sectors. And if not, they can just go and export production elsewhere. And th- you know that's that. And I think, mm, I'm not sure entirely. Yeah, but it's an even more fundamental than that. I mean, it's uh, Arigi's claim that you can't understand, you know, like I said, you can't understand the dynamic without um, understanding how it's partly driven by working class power. Whereas um, in the, um, you know, you don't have that dynamic. It's um, it's more working class organization is more a response to the downturn in, according to Arigi, the long downturn of the late 19th century, whereas it's reversed in the 20th century. Working class power has a much more um, kind of catalytic effect. Um Anyway, um, I mean, from speaking for myself, I think I'm more sympathetic to Brenner's, um, you know, I think kind of Irigi's third worldist instinct that you have to always account for the kind of majority of humanity. Um, I'm not, you know, you can dispute which, you know, what economic centers you want to include, but um, it doesn't seem to me to be an illegitimate move per se. And I would say it's been vindicated, you know, in kind of recent times, the simple kind of the, you know, the world historic um, nature of mass migration, I think, to the West indicates that you've got just a kind of um, 
a real dismal collapse, I think, of state and society in so many places, um, uh, you know, kind of in Africa and the Middle East um, and outside of East Asia, basically, you know. Yeah. Um, and that seems to me to be world, just the sheer scale of it seems to me to be a world historic phenomenon that speaks to um, the lack of any kind of um, dynamic or process or um, possibility of significant meaningful change in those societies that propels, you know, so many of their citizens abroad to um, seek to improve their lives. Um, but anyway, um, it's something which, again, I think we'll come back to in the third section because this is a Rigi building up. I wanted to, I wanted to conclude with a um, a a kind of a broad um, a broad question, and one which goes back to. Um, who has already mentioned goes back to Quasimodo, um, which is this idea of whether or not you can transplant hegemony from the national to the international stage and what the implications and ramifications are. And this is discussed by Arigi on page 150. And I should say, can you? I mean, obviously, people do it all the time. Hegemony is kind of um, very easily um, discussed in international affairs, um, though obviously its origins lie in the in um, Quasimodo's account of the role that it plays, you, at the you can't just say that and not say. You know, you know, you're thinking you're being funny, Antonio, but people don't know who that Gubu, is. So, Gobu, um, and Antonio Gramsci, I think, is who Phil is referring to, and actually, he obviously, takes it from from Lenin. But we don't need to get into that. But no, I think, yeah, can you trans transplant? Well, what's involved? Not can you, yeah. I suppose, because people do. But what's involved? Um, in doing so, um, and I guess it's we might as well start with you, George, because um, you are the um, you are the resident expert. Well, hello, listener. I hope you like what you're hearing. It's a short excerpt from an episode that's available only to subscribers. Want to support BungaCast and get at least two original episodes a month? Sign up at Patreon.com/BungaCast right now. $5 a month patrons get access to exclusive episodes like our in-depth analyses of present history. You know, the big stuff that's happening right now. As well as chats with our regular guests, extended interviews with the key thinkers trying to understand our world today, and much more. For $10 a month, you join the BungoCast Reading Club, the place for those of us who are serious about equipping ourselves with the necessary intellectual tools for understanding the world and seeking to change it. Phil, George, and myself, Alex, look forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash BungaCast.